The following content could in fact be explicit, contain moments of explicitity, flex of explicature, trace elements of explication. Actually, that last one's a goal. Good day. That's that's what Paul Harvey used to say. Uh, he was a big radio personality. He's, he's dead, long since dead, but that's how he began his broadcasts. Uh, uh, it's Saturday, and this is the best of the gist. Once again, I'm not Mike Pesca, but I am Bob Garfield, and I guest hosted the show earlier this week. And in the latter of those episodes, I spoke with Alec Baldwin uh, we, for uh, quite a while, well over an hour. And it was pointedly not about his travails, to which... Uh, much has been already much time has already been devoted and and certainly no new developments at the moment instead we spoke for uh, a great while about a lot of trivia uh, in Hollywood about uh, the ticks and tropes that seem uh, ever present in studio films but we also talked about some misgivings and disappointments he has in the way uh, the industry is run today. And uh, so we're going to play a big fat chunk of that now. Uh, and and uh, that's not all. We're, we're also going to be p- playing, and I, I don't exactly understand why, but I trust my producers implicitly, uh, an interview I did with Mike. He was interviewing me back in 2017 about uh, a one-man show I, I took a few places around the country uh, back then, and it was called Ruggedly Jewish, which I believe is self-explanatory. So uh, here we go. Alec Baldwin and uh, me, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, 
B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, because of the way this conversation has turned, and I didn't know where it was going to go, uh, but uh, I believe I'm now obliged to ask about the, the geezer's eye view problem. Do, do, you, do you remember the movie Atlantic City yes. with a young Susan Sarandon and Burt Lancaster? I defended her honor. <laughs> uh, it was just such a phenomenal performance. I mean, maybe yes. his, I mean, this is the great actor with a, a scenography that, uh, that is uh, uh, startling. And yet uh, to me, yes. th- this was his mess. big star, great star. Uh, but he's, he's with a young, uh, you know, punk, like would want to be drug dealer. And he himself was a wannabe gangster back in the thirties. And he was a door yes. opener for mob figures in Atlantic city. And now he's, now he's 75 and he's still living on his imagined past glories. And he keeps talking about the, the old days, the old days. Uh, and he, so he's walking on the boardwalk in Atlantic city. And this kid he's with is from Canada. He's never seen the Atlantic Ocean. He says, I can't believe how big it is. And Burt Lancaster says, uh, you should have seen it back in the 30s. That was an ocean. That was- <laughs> so it's what you're saying now, you know, just sort of that was an ocean, uh, that it's inevitable that, you know, you're you're younger than me. I'm obviously the oldest living American and you're younger than me, but you know, you're, you're an actor of a, of a past generation looking yeah. at the modern industry. Isn't it inevitable that you will think that the, the, the golden era is long since past? Well, I mean, the golden era of everything is long since past because of media. We have such a media saturation when someone, when Jeremy Renner gets injured in a snowplow accident uh, in some remote part of the country, you hear about it minutes later. Mm-hmm. You know, the kind of uh, clickbait immediacy we have. Uh, uh, years ago, people would watch, and I, and I say this, this is very important. I really mean this genuinely. You know, years ago, people would watch shows like Dallas and Dynasty, and they would watch the absurdly wealthy misbehave. And they took a so, kind of comfort in that. They were like, well, these people are as petty and as selfish, maybe even more so than you and I. And they would watch and, you know, their furs and their diamonds, all the Linda Evans and all this other stuff. And what you see now, which is troublesome to me on a variety of levels, is that um, celebrity itself depends on a significant majority of the public doing well. I can turn to you and say, you know something? You, you're going to get paid $40 million to swing a baseball bat. Good for you. You worked hard. You're, you're, you, you, there's all that money that they're making in that pool, you know, whatever that, if it's movies or TV or sports or music, there's a lot of money swirling around in that tank. And like, why shouldn't you have it? Movie stars, they'd say, I've loved your films. I mean, I really, you've entertained me. You've thrilled me. There's all these things. So that when I go, and that, that it depends on when I go home, I got a car, I got a job, my kids are in a decent school, I can pay my bills. There's, I don't have everything I want, but I have nearly everything, if not everything I need. I'm comfortable. I'm okay. I'm safe. I'm not worried I'm going to lose my job in the next month. I'm not worried. And so in order for celebrity to exist, everybody else had to be doing okay. And then they could tip their hat to you and say, good for you. Good for you. 
Now, a dramatic number of people, uh, I don't want to say if it's COVID, pre-post-COVID, 2008, who knows, where a increased number of people do not have economic security on that level. And you start to hear the resentment. I have people write to me and they'd be like, you know, if I come out against, uh, if I come out in favor of uh, uh, alternative energy and people are like, what are you going to fuel your private jet with? They'll say to me, I mean, they will attack. How, how would you know, you out of touch, rich douchebag? You know, I mean, they're just, they just beat you with it online. And you sit there and go, oh, I get it. You know, celebrities are people where, you, you, not that you're resentful, you just think it's unfair that we live in a society now where some people are paid, you know, tens of millions of dollars to make a movie and a, a growing number of people are uh, insecure economically. And I see that as a result of that economic insecurity, celebrity itself is in a precarious place. I really mean that. I really do. That's a big change I've seen. And, and, and then the overall demonization of wealth, period, in this country whether you're a businessman or you're a you know, financier, everybody's sitting there going, you got, you know, <laughs> this applies to everybody but Trump. <laughs> when you find out Trump paid no taxes, people are like, well, you know. Yeah. Did Jesus file an income tax return? <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> so anyway, I'm rambling. But I mean, I, I feel that the, the this business, the biggest changes are always technical. Tech changes everything. Tech, being able to watch a product at home and not have to leave your house that to, and, and watch a high-quality, high-res, these new uh, iPad Pros and things like that. I mean, you can't do any better than that, technically. And um, to go to the movies, uh, I saw Tar, and I saw The Whale, and I saw some of these other films. And they're, you know, it's virtuosic acting, uh, especially with Kate. Um, it's great. Uh, some, you know, it's interesting, but um, I fear that we're headed in a place where nearly all drama, nearly all drama. I mean, a great movie is a movie that you either want to see again, like Citizen Kane is obviously an example. You're just dazzled by the pace, by the sound mixing. You're just dazzled by the editing. The camera everything angles. Everything about Citizen Kane, the, the camera angles, everything, the Godfather. The Godfather is literally like a painting that starts to move and come to life with the, the, the production design, all those browns and tobaccos and sepias and everything. And The Godfather is, of course, from a, a design standpoint and a cinematographic standpoint, just you know, beyond compare. But another thing about movies is that you can't watch it again. Like when I watched the movie Boys Don't Cry, uh, that she uh, did. Um, why am I blanking out? Um, she said twice uh, Oscar winning. Actress. She won the Oscar for, uh, oh shit, she, we don't need to the, cut this she out. She won for the pri uh, prize fighting movie. And she, she won, won for, for those. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Hillary Swank. So, so Hillary Swank uh, does Boys Don't Cry, which is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that's just an amazing movie and an amazing performance. And she's so, you know, I mean, that is virtuosic acting in my, in my standpoint. But it's so painful. You can't go back and watch that movie. It's agonizing what they do to her. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, finding things like that, that's all going to get relegated, I think, to the streaming services. And movies are just going to be, um, you know, these $200 million uh, uh, 
thrill rides. You know. I want to ask you one last thing. Yes. Uh, I've I've known you for some years, and uh, you know sometimes you're a bit down in the dumps, and I try to remind you about the what you have left behind for the world forever. And one of the maybe at the top of my list is your uh, one scene. You will, I think, on, only one scene in Glengarry Glen Ross, in one of the greatest monologues ever written for film. David Mamet, uh, uh, when when he's on, he's on, and this was just mad, majestic. As you were the guy from from downtown who was coming in to uh, give hell to the bedraggled salesmen yeah. of this. Yeah. sleazy real estate firm. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them. You can't close the leads you're given. You can't close shit. You are shit. Hit the bricks, pal, and beat it, because you are going out. And uh, I played a, a clip of that monologue in the introduction for this, and I've mentioned it to you before. And you always want to change the subject. You were in a film with some of the greatest actors who ever lived, doing some of the best performances they ever gave, including yours. And I'm talking True. Jack yeah. Lemmon, Alan Arkin, Kevin Spacey, Ed Harris. It, it, it was uh, yeah. Al Pacino. Royal Flush. Royal Flush. Yeah. And, but you always change the subject. Why do you change the subject? Well, if you can't deliver a well-written monologue that's seven or eight minutes long, if you can't carry that, then you're – um, you got a problem. I mean, you need to, I mean, there are monologues in films, uh, where, um, the issue is the writing. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's some stuff that needs to be cut. It needs to be cut before you shoot because you have a build and you have a rhythm. And if you film something, like I've done movies where I had two and three page monologues and you film something. And if you do the cutting in the cutting room, that's very, very difficult. Because I said that piece, I swallowed that whole. I I I presented that monologue as written, and there are peaks and dips, and there's things you want to do to vary it. And to, you can, you know they always teach you in acting school, you can't give an equivalency of value to everything. You can't be yelling about everything. You can't be uh, amusing yourself and laugh, making yourself laugh. There's a whole list of things they tell you: don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and uh, particularly in film acting. And um, the thing with Glengarry was that, uh, like, if you can't do it uh, with great writing, you know, if the writing's there and it doesn't work, it's you. And you have to admit that. That's what Greg Mosier said to us when we, when we did Streetcar. Mosier walked into rehearsal the first day. He goes, well, we know the material works. So if the show's a bomb, it's us. <laughs> Those were his first words to us in rehearsal. <laughs> if the show is a bomb, it's us. And we were all sitting there at the table going, yeah, 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 got that, got that. And with Glenn Gary, uh, Mamet said to me, I called him on the phone, and I said, you won the Pulitzer Prize for the play. Why did you feel it was necessary to amend it in any way whatsoever? He said, these men don't have a criminal nature. 
He said, these men are not criminals. He says, and they're about to commit a criminal act. So I needed something, some deus ex machina type of thing to come in and mm. really, really squeeze mm. their balls as hard as you can. And, 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 and you're going to incite them to commit a crime. You come down and say, if you don't do this, you're, you're dead. And he said, I needed that scene because these men were now going to go commit a criminal act. And I was like, okay, you got it. First sure. prize is I mean, a Cadillac. Second prize surprise. is steak knives. Third right. prize is you're fired. You're fired. Yeah. But the, to do that scene was, I mean, I will tell you, all movie making for me, plays are different because it gets in your blood. Plays, you watch a play. You'll watch a play that you did and you'll and you drive the person you're with who's your who's your mate that's going to the show with you you'll drive them crazy because you'll lean over like four or five times and say i didn't do it that way <laughs> I, I did it i did this whole other thing <laughs> and they're sitting next to you going ah yeah i got that i got that and you're haunted by having done the play again and again and again and again movies are like sandcastles you know they're gone and you're you're not in charge of what happens and everything what you remember are the people. All you, I remember are the people. I never remember any scenes I shot. Never, never. I mean, I look at the movies I do. I never, people will call me and say, we want to honor you at a film festival. What movie should we show? And I'll say, well, you should show uh, On the Waterfront. <laughs> and they'll go, no, 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 no. A, a movie of yours. And I go, oh, I don't want to do that. I said, I want to come there and have a good time. Why the fuck would I want to show one of my own movies? I'm not going to have a good time doing that because all I see is what's wrong, you know? And so when I did Glenn Gary is the best example of that, I mean, my God, to be in the room with those guys, it was such a great honor. And Lemon. I, I boy, get the whoosh, chills I mean, oh, thinking about Jack Lemon's yeah. performance in that. And I get the chills. I'm thinking about being with them. When I did Malice, George C. Scott showed up to play my mentor. And he was very ill at the mm. time. You know, he was very ill. Julie Harris, who played my my mother in Knott's Landing. Uh, uh, you know, or, uh, Peter Boyle, I worked with on The Shadow, which was not a good film, but we had a good time doing it. Uh, on and on and on and on and on with all these people. It's it's who you get to meet. I mean, how the movies come out, I never attach myself to if they do, If they do well, great. And if they don't, I'm sad. But it's really not my responsibility. I can just... I tell that to actors now. I say, a trap is for you to think about anything other than your performance. Don't give it another thought about anything. Don't think about the release date and the this and the poster and the this. That's none of your fucking business. Just... Do your best work and keep the focus on yourself. And uh, but for me, it's always been who I worked with. Who I worked with was everything. You know, Alec. Um, I want. I want to. This is not the first time that you uh, uh, have been uh, have subjected yourself to a conversation with me. I'm very, very grateful, and uh, I, I wish you a very happy 2023. You too, buddy. Take care, man. Thank you, Bob. Bye-bye. Thank you, Grandpa Bob Garfield. <laughs> <laughs>
and Bob Garfield. Bob is my guest. And the reason I bring this up is, A, it's a hilarious joke. But B, Bob's also coming out with a one-man show, possibly to a city near you. If you're near New York, Berkeley, Chicago, or for some reason, Park City, Utah. And it's, it's about Judaism, a certain brand of Judaism. Hello, Ju- hello, Bob. Hello, Jew. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> You're doing all the work for me. <laughs> hello, Bob. How are hello, you? Hello, half Jew. It's, uh, it's nice to talk to you. Thank you. I'll be coming. So should I come for just uh, the first act uh, and leave an intermission or sneak in an intermission? <laughs> How does it work? No, I understand. No, that's between you and your gods. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is the name of the show and why is the name of the show? All right. The show is called Ruggedly Jewish. And it is called that because it is plainly absurd. And it's a lot about my fraught relationship with my religion. And uh, it's, uh, it's a, a search for identity, but not only my religious identity, a whole mess of other identities along the way. So when I ever hear when I hear a search for I don't know for some reason plays use that in the uh, in the press releases a lot I kind of hate a search for I like a story of I like I know what I have going in and you've already done the stories you've done so many stories on seekers and weirdos and quirky people and somehow that's all wrapped up in Judaism were you a Boy Scout or did you ever go to sleepaway camp I was I had some. Uh, alliances with the Weeblos. Okay, so then you know uh, how to make a lanyard. Mm-hmm. You get some gimp, which is some sort of extruded vinyl mm-hmm. and in these strands, you know, and you weave them together in various kinds of stitches that you can come up with a lanyard to hold a whistle or actually usually nothing. But in any event, that's what Ruggedly Jewish is meant to be. All these disparate strands about me and my struggles with my own Jewish identity, but also the the deplorables and and their hunt for identity which finally expresses itself in the most toxic ways and largely explains i i think the trump administration and in between all of these as you mentioned these american eccentrics and seekers who i spent years and years reporting on for all things considered who i believe were themselves ultimately in a search for an identity a particularly american form of identity that is rooted in the impulse for self-improvement. Yeah, when that New York Times article on the uh, nice Nazi next door, there were parts in it that resonated uh, because he was a libertarian first and then he was in a punk band and you could tell this guy wound up with the worst possible answer, but it was this very human search for identity. And uh, having interviewed Kurt Anderson and read his book, it's like America is all about encouraging these eccentrics, except when they hit and when they land, we stop calling them eccentrics. We call them maybe Brigham Young or Joseph Smith or horribly, horribly off course. And we're seeing that with the neo-Nazis. We are. And I think we're inculcated from birth that... Our identity is rooted in some sort of self-improvement. And and if you used to earn 45, this is a line from the show, if you used to earn 45 bucks an hour down at the auto parts plant, and now you're making 12 bucks driving the airport shuttle, wh- what does that make you? Yeah. The, the answer is a failure, so you better figure out, uh, explain to yourself how, how that doesn't make you a failure and, and uh, thus... Do we find the underpinnings of, of Trumpism? So when you when you interviewed, and I remember the great interviews you did with All Things Considered, where they sent you on the road and you found eccentrics. And I remember the resulting book, which is called Waking Up Screaming from the American Dream. I have a signed copy that I cherish. 
Tell me about one or two who show up in Ruggedly Jewish. I'll tell you about Rose Loki. She was a Detroit cable access TV host. But that's sort of besides the point of this story, because mainly she was the owner of Katrina, the talking cat. And Rose could not understand why nine lives and, and tender vittles weren't, you know, be, meow mix, beating a path to her door to make Katrina and her stars and to pay them untold wealth to get Katrina on TV pitching cat food. She just could not understand. And she, <laughs> she, she of course, uh, showed me how magnificently Katrina, the talking cat, could talk. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's quite a display. And how did she sound? Well, Mike, she sounded like this. Say, I'm amazing. 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 I'll, I'll leave it for you to decide how good Katrina's elocution was. I can say <laughs> the, the, the That's what it is. It's just, a question, it's just a question of pronunciation, huh? <laughs> the definitely words. I'm just, it's on me not to, to, to delve through the accent, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, who are we to judge? That's I right. mean, after all, it's a cat that talks. Uh, I can tell you how this, uh, how Rose went about this. She she held the cat, yeah, and she put her hand in the you know sort of undercarriage, and she did some squeezing. <laughs> yeah, uh, she never made it into the into the cat food marketing industry. And by the way, I am not meaning to suggest that the measure of success in life is fame and riches. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that that is the metric that we so often encounter. And we're under a lot of pressure. Every American who, you know, doesn't become president of the United States like we're promised, uh, you know, all through life feels like they failed to measure up. And sometimes, as we're learning today in this very, very fraught political moment, that the the repercussions can be very serious. This is, of course, separate from the fact of whether I'm a a Jew or not. (laughs) Well, where's the Judaism come in? That the pressure, the pressure as a Jew to to be successful, is that part of it? Well, the through line of this piece is that uh, we're all trying to figure out who the hell we are, Mm -hmm. right? And... In my case, I was born Jewish, grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, got a Jewish education, know a whole mess of Hebrew prayers, and have spent most of my life, I am 62 years old, the oldest living American, and I've spent the, the greatest part of my life running away from that, from the culture, as fast as I can. And our current political moment has made me give some thought about this, you know, I I, I don't want to be stereotyped as a self-loathing Jew because it's not that, but I'm not a believer. So this raises the question of who and what am I? And it's kind of been in the back of my mind my whole life. Now with Nazis marching in Charlottesville, I've been giving it a whole lot more thought. So you started uh, hosting, permanent hosting on the media. I was there, what, 2000, the year 2000? Yes. Yeah. And I remember, do you remember the Columbine test? I do not. The col- we, were, we were casting about for p- possibly a new name for the show, 
And so as we were talking about different kind of names, uh, some were funny or clever, but we said it had to pass the Columbine test. At that point, Columbine being the worst incident in fairly recent history, and we knew that we'd be coming on the air perhaps the Friday after Columbine, and it couldn't be, you know, Brooke and Bob's wacky media cavalcade. Here we're talking and intoning about Columbine. Remember when Columbine was simply unspeakable, unimaginable tragedy, unlike anything that had preceded it. Yeah. And now it's, you know, just uh, it's one line in a very, very long Wikipedia entry. And and in fact, I remember you doing a great interview with, I forgot who it was, but you kind of pounded the table, as you are wont to do, and say, are we going to get to the place where there's a school shooting and it doesn't even show up on page A1 or A2 and A or A3? You were apoplectic about what would happen to us as a society if we became so inured to that. And it's absolutely come to pass. It has. You know, it's the war dead list. When the war starts, there's front page profiles in the New York Times. And, you know, six months into the war, war it's there's a, a list in agate somewhere in the back. Yeah. One of the reasons I brought up the Columbine test was just to mark it in time. It was before 9-11, and at that time, the media landscape was totally different. And gatekeepers got swept away, and there was a democratization of voices, much for the good. But you know what? Lately, in the last two years, I have been yearning for the gatekeepers. The gatekeepers weren't always great. They weren't always qualified. Some of them were born into it. They were overwhelmingly In fact, we made a living. Yeah. We made a living, Mike, finding fault with the decisions and the practices of the gatekeepers, right? Those were the good old days. Those were the good. I think you probably won your first first Peabody doing just that. But man, I... And I wonder if you do too. I yearn for some more gatekeeping. I would trade however much democratizing influence we've had, just in terms of the election and how important it is, I would trade all of the democratization of the internet for Ben Bradley and three networks (laughs) and the gatekeepers telling me what is true and what is false. Well, you know, I appreciate your, uh, the thought and there is a bit of a, kids get off of my lawn uh, mm-hmm. vibe to it because, you know, we can't go back to the good yeah, old days. Yeah, except right now the kids have, the kids have, you know, planted stakes in the lawn and are tearing <laughs> up the lawn and maybe putting a bomb inside the lawn. <laughs> yeah. I also, you know, don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There have clearly been dystopian consequences of the digital revolution, but there have also been many, many utopian and democratizing aspects of it. This same stuff that gave us the 2016 election also gave us Easy Pass. Easy Pass. That's the one. Oh, right? That's, I, mean, I mean, I that's, think that's, it's that's maybe the, the greatest thing that technology has ever brought us. <laughs> this is how they get you. We should have bullet trains, if not teleportation machines. <laughs> oh, my God. Bob Garfield is the host of On the Media and Ruggedly Jewish will be December 9th in Chicago, January 14th in New York. January 27th in Berkeley and February 17th in Utah, Park City, Utah. Bob Garfield, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Mike. And I'm sorry, I, I misheard. Did you say December 9th, which is this coming Saturday in Chicago at Park West at 730? Mm-hmm. I, I, I might have misheard. Yeah, yeah, maybe uh, not all the details. Uh, tickets available at... Go to ruggedlyjewish.com or to the Park West uh, ticket buying online, whatever. Yeah, I think it's called a website. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, media expert Bob Garfield.
<laughs> uh, Mike, as you know from yeah. having worked with me for years, I am far too busy criticizing the media <laughs> to consume it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Mike. And there you have it. The Gist is produced by Joel Patterson and Corey Wara. I'm Bob Garfield, and Mike allegedly will be back Monday. I will believe it when I see it.